It is so good to see y'all again. I love watching all the faces pop up in the gallery view. And when the time to depart is come, it's often easy to linger and just look at all the different families and the names. And y'all are missed. And we are eager to see you again next Thursday and then next Sunday and hopefully to resume somewhat normal family life together. Well, last week we left our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane where after washing his disciples' feet and celebrating the Last Supper and issuing the new commandment after announcing the new covenant, he crossed over the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane there on the west side of the Mount of Olives. And there he prayed while his disciples slept. And then Judas betrayed him with a kiss, identifying him to the soldiers in the dark garden. And the disciples fled to save themselves, forsaking their Lord. And he was left alone in the hands of his enemies. And there's such a stark contrast of him leaving the upper room in Jerusalem and crossing over, leading his disciples. And when he goes back, he's led. And when he goes over the first time, he's among friends. And when he comes back, he's surrounded by enemies. And up until that moment, he was still dictating and directing matters and affairs, but having yielded his will to the Lord, he now places himself passively in the hands of his enemies so that they might accomplish what the Lord had intended through them. And so now we see that as he goes back, he is going to endure a series of six trials, three religious and three, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to split my screen that just went over, three religious and three civil Sorry about that. First before Annas, who was the, pre the previous high priest. And then we'll see today Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, who became priest in 18 AD and held that office until 36. So during the birth of the church, the Sanhedrin, Judaism Supreme Judicial Council, and then three civil trials in the hands of Pilate, who was the Roman prefect of Judea, and Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, the king who put John the Baptist to death. Next week, we're going to be looking at the civil trials, but today we want to look at Jesus in the hands of his own people, Jesus in the hands of the religious authorities of Israel. And we're going to see, first of all, Jesus's religious trial. And then simultaneously with this, and in a similar setting, we're going to see Peter's religious trial. And the two are intentionally set together in what we've called a Mark and Sandwich, where Peter's circumstances are introduced, and then we get the intervening episode of Jesus' trial, which helps us understand the closing episode with Peter. And that's going to educate us and inform us, inspire us and warn us about our own religious trials when they come. So we turn in verse 53, that they led Jesus away to the high priest. Uh, they is that crowd of swords with or the crowd with swords and clubs who were the Jewish soldiers sent from the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus in secret because they feared the unpopularity of this move in front of the crowd, which is why they needed Judas to betray him in a place where he would not be surrounded by others. And the high priest is Caiaphas, the leading religious officer in Israel. And there gathered waiting, even though it's 2 a.m. approximately are all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes who have been gathered in anticipation. So when Judas left the Lord's Supper, he went and informed them that it was about to begin, where he was going, and then he gathered the soldiers. They captured Jesus, 
and then led him to the awaiting tribunal that was meeting in Caiaphas's home. And we've seen this same three group of chief priests, elders, and scribes several times now, most recently on Tuesday in the temple where Jesus embarrassed them by thwarting their attempts to trap him. And now you can imagine, imagine in their embarrassment and animosity, they have Jesus in private, in their hands, already having predetermined to kill him, but garnering evidence so that they can justify it in the eyes of the Romans and of the Jewish people. Peter likewise followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us that another disciple who knew the high priest was actually able to get him in the courtyard. And commentators think that this is most likely John, the beloved disciple. So with John's help, Peter is able to follow after Jesus and is lingering in the courtyard of the high priest, sitting with the officers, warming himself by the fire. And so now you can imagine Peter having fled with the other disciples in the guard, but now following shamefully after Jesus, sneaking in at a campfire in the cold Israeli night, but surrounded by the officers, some of whom very likely were those that had gone to arrest Jesus. And so we leave Peter warming himself below and move to the room above where Jesus is facing his tribunal. Verse 55 tells us that the chief priest and the whole council, that is the Sanhedrin, the highest religious tribunal in Israel, that Romans used as a uh, indigenous intermediary between their oppressive rule and then satisfying the people. And this was a group of 70 elders, high priests, and scribes, plus the high priest himself coming to one, so our 71. It says that the whole council gathered, and some take this to mean all 71 were present for this important event, others that at least the legal quorum was there, which is either 23 or 26. And having gathered, they kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They weren't questioning anymore what he was saying, who he was, what he claimed his identity to be, how he justified the drastic actions he was taking, like cleansing the temple. They had predetermined to kill him, and now they're simply trying to garner false evidence to justify it before the Jews and to warn him being crucified by the Romans. And they were not finding any. The reason being that they were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. So the law of Moses required for a capital offense two or more witnesses. And even though they had plenty of witnesses, the witnesses were inconsistent and could not agree, and therefore they did not have a legal basis to condemn him. We get an example of this accusation in verse 57. Some stood by and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And yet, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent or even accurate. Now, what they're remembering is an incident that occurred three Passovers ago in the first year of Jesus' public ministry, but was such a drastic statement that they recall it three years later and then will throw it in Jesus' face when he's hanging on a cross. The Apostle John tells us, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? In John chapter 2. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He did not say he would destroy the temple. He said to them, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and it would be raised, not replaced. And the Jews responded, it took 46 years to build this temple, meaning 
the temple of Herod that had been rebuilt after the restoration of Israel, after the captivity. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus knew from the beginning of his ministry that ultimately it was going to lead to the replacement of the old temple with its old sacrificial system, with its old priesthood, so that a new temple, the church, with a new sacrifice, the death of the substitutionary son of God, and finally a new priest, Jesus Christ, the high priest, as the old covenant gave way to the new, and it would take him dying on a cross as well as his resurrection. So Jesus had announced this. They misinterpret those words as a threat of the institution of the temple. And then later we're going to see when he's hanging on the cross that they'll say before him, hurling abuse, wagging their heads saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Which of course he could have done, but then would not have been the savior of the world. That if the perfect lamb of God had not been slain, then we would still be in our sins and we could not be forgiven and reconciled to God. So Jesus knew this early, had announced this three years previously. And as they raised this old statement, even then they're unable to give a consistent testimony against him. And so no longer entrusting matters into other people's hands, Caiaphas himself, whom the gospels portray as the primary, uh, the primary protagonist against Jesus, the primary agent and individual orchestrating his betrayal, his trial, and his condemnation. Caiaphas in verse 60 steps forward and says, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and did not answer. Now, Jesus, of course, could have responded. Uh, there's never an episode in the Gospels where people confront Jesus and get the better of that encounter. Jesus could have thwarted them. Uh, he could have given another telling parable. He could have exposed their malice, but he remained silent, not dignifying their accusations with a response, but also fulfilling a prophecy given in Isaiah 53, a section of which we read this morning that says, he was oppressed and he, that is the servant of God, was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus' intent was not to defend himself. Jesus' intent was not to vindicate himself against the accusations against him. He had already asked the Father that if it would be possible for the cup of his suffering to pass from him, but it wasn't, not if he was going to die on our behalf. And so now he is there, silent, having placed himself in his enemy's hands. Caiaphas, frustrated, now says in verse 61, the high priest was questioning him and say to him, are you the Christ, the Messiah? the son of the blessed one. And Jesus said, I am. Now we, as the readers of the gospel, knew from the very first verse of the gospel of Mark that said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. And all through the gospel has been this growing hint of who is this person. And the demons right away knew who he was, that he was the holy one of God, the son of God, but Jesus silenced them. And the pivot point of the gospel is the climactic confession of Peter when Jesus says, who do the people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus began to explain to the disciples what was going to happen to him with three predictions of his suffering and his death. And now, very directly, the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah? 
And Jesus just as directly answered, yes, I am. That this is indeed the seed of Eve who came to crush the serpent's head. This is the promised seed of Abraham in whom all the nations would be blessed. This is the lion of Judah who would one day reign over God's people. This is the son of David who would rule, rule over an everlasting kingdom. This is the prince of peace. This is all of the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectations. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all those. It's like we sing at Christmas. He's the one in whom the hopes and fears of all the years were met in him on the night of his birth. And had Jesus stopped there, he would not have been denounced as a blasphemer because many people had claimed to be Messiah. Uh, even the Jews themselves would call figures like Bar Kokhba, who led a rebellion in 132 against Rome, as the Messiah. They were praying for a Messiah, hoping for a Messiah. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to identify himself with two other Old Testament figures by quoting two other Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what Jesus means by, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Now, he had used the same verse, the most quoted Old Testament verse in the Gospels, to indicate that not only is he sitting at the right hand of God, he is Lord, that he is the God-man, that he identifies himself as David's Lord, even though David was king and had no one of higher authority over him. The second figure comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7. There the prophet says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, a man-like human figure was coming, and he came up to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And unlike Isaiah or anyone else who comes into God's presence, he doesn't immediately fall prostrate because he's worthy to come into the throne room of God. And to him, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that all the peoples, not just the Jews, but all the nations and men of every language, not just Hebrew, might serve him. And his dominion is not just a temporary one, but an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away because he never passes away and no one will ever supplant him. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus blatantly, bluntly, unmistakably claims to be the Messiah and the fulfillment of all those messianic prophecies, as well as David's Lord who sat at the right hand of the throne of God, as well as the Son of Man whom God gave all glory and all power and dominion to rule over all the nations and tribes of the earth forever and forever. This is who Jesus is. And the incongruity of Jesus, the ultimate high priest, standing there before Israel's high priest that was so unworthy. That Jesus, who was the perfect representative of God, standing before this malicious, self-seeking, Roman capitulating priest. And the contrast between whom God intended to rule his people over the one that he had allowed temporarily to have authority over his people and over his son. And there's this moment, and, and we don't know, but you wonder if there was pause in Caiaphas's heart just for a moment, just a blink in his mind, that this one might be more than he had thought, that this opportunity for him to even then to kneel, to bow, 
to fall on his face prostrate and to give himself to Christ and to lead the people on a better path. But he doesn't. Instead, the text says that he tore his clothes, rending his inner garment. And the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Unable to garner false witnesses that could agree with each other, now he takes Jesus' statement against him and says, you have heard the blasphemy, that he equated himself with David's Lord sitting at God's right hand. He equated himself with the Son of Man who would rule forever and ever. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And these next verses are hard to read. <laughs> Some began to spit at him. And they blindfolded him. And they beat him with their fists. And they said to him, prophesy. And the officers received him slaps in the face so here is the most perfect man who ever lived here is the one who only came to serve and help and to heal and to liberate redeem and restore and this is how the world treated him by mocking him by spitting on him by beating him by abusing him by derisively daring him to prophesy, not realizing that he had prophesied this very thing. This is what Jesus has said in Mark chapter 10. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will scourge him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. They dare him to prophesy. Jesus had already prophesied this. And he stood there and absorbed all of it. And you can't help wondering whether there was some angry rumbling in the throne room. If the angels didn't have to stay their hand from coming down and slaying those that would mistreat God's son in this way. And yet Jesus took the abuse. And why? Because it was necessary to save us. Jesus allowed himself to be spit upon so that he could redeem the disciples who fled him. Jesus allowed himself to be beat so that he could save Peter who was going to deny him. Jesus allowed himself to be slapped and mocked so that he could from the cross pray, God forgive them for they do not know what they do. And he allowed himself to be abused this way because that's what was necessary for us to be saved, to be reconciled, to be restored. And now with this gruesome, poignant, painful scene going on, the scene shifts to the courtyard below where a second trial is taking place. Verse 66 says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him. So here's Peter down below warming himself by the fire. And you wonder, this is a residence, not a, uh, the temple. Could he hear the voices? Could he hear the blows fall? Could he hear the slaps? At the very least, he heard the voice of a servant girl who saw him and then looked at him, who took another look and recognized him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you were talking about. And he went out onto the porch. He leaves the fire that had warmed him, but also had illumined his features. And he goes out into the forecourt, uh, is another translation for the word porch. And there in the cold and the obscurity, he tries to avoid further recognition. Because again, the people in the courtyard would have been the servants of the high priest, some of whom might have been the soldiers gone into the Garden of Gethsemane who would have seen Peter with Jesus, who might have seen Peter draw his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest. For all we know, Malthus, the man whose ear had been cut off, might have been there also. And so Peter is unnerved and he leaves. But the servant girl saw him leave and becoming even more suspicious, began to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. Not just you were with him, you are one of them, one of the disciples, one of the followers, one of the apostles, one of the crowd that her master, the high priest Caiaphas, had denounced and decried. And now we see, after a little while, as the bystanders probably consult among themselves, confer and agree that maybe Peter was indeed who she said he was, say to him, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean too. Ironically, Peter, in denying that he knew Jesus, gave himself away with his Galilean accent so that they recognized his voice, that he was from that northern region of Israel that Jesus was associated with. And Peter now, as their accusations become more severe, so does his denunciation. He begins to curse and to swear. Uh, swearing is to give an oath, a vow, a sacred claim that this is true, what I'm about to say. The word curse is taken in four different ways, two less likely, two possible. Uh, one is that he used profanity, and we say cursing like a sailor, and I suspect the Galilean fisherman knew a few choice words also, but that's unlikely. Uh, secondly is that he cursed Christ, but 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that no one can curse Christ who is truly saved by, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It could mean then either that he is saying, let me be cursed if I'm telling a lie, even though he knows that he's telling a bold-faced lie. Or it could mean that he was cursing his accusers, saying something like, dang you, how dare you accuse me of? But in any event, Peter absolutely denies knowing him or even having any knowledge of this man. He doesn't even mention Jesus' name. And in that moment, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. One of the parallel accounts says he began to weep bitterly. The Peter the rock has hit rock bottom. Just hours before Jesus had said, 
After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Yet even then, Peter kept saying insistently, even I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then the others echoed the same thing also. The contrast between the two trials is stark and intentional. Jesus is accused by the high priest. <laughs> Peter is accused by the high priest servant girl. Jesus is accused by the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling office in Israel. Peter, some bystanders who happen to be loitering in the courtyard. Jesus is in a lit room that's the tribunal in secret of the Sanhedrin. Peter's in a courtyard in the dark. Jesus boldly affirms, I am the Christ. Peter boldly denies, I don't even know this man. Jesus stands strong. Peter capitulates. And we're intended to see the contrast to encourage us on our own walks. Because remember, Mark is writing this in Rome to Roman Christians as Peter's amanuensis, as Peter's scribe. And you can imagine Peter, uh, how shamed he was to recount this to Mark, to let these memories flood back. And yet his willingness to give his own failure as an example, if it would inspire other followers of Christ to do better than he had done. To not proudly assume that they could stand on their own, to not proudly deny that they would ever deny Christ, but to realize that they are fallen and weak. And therefore, we need, like Christ, to pray that we don't enter into temptation because our flesh is weak, even if our spirit is sometimes willing. And now this incident helps us prepare for our own religious trials, which Jesus promises are coming to us. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it, is, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. I have given them your word, he prays to God, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. First John says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one, and slew his brother. And why did Cain slay Abel? Because Cain's deeds were evil <clears throat> and his brother's deeds were righteous. Being righteous isn't enough to save our life in this world because the evil resent it. And therefore, John says, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. If you're as righteous as Abel, that will only bring the resentment of a wicked world upon us. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's promised, so it should be expected. Uh, this last Thursday on Zoom, <clears throat> our theme was praying for the persecuted church. And initially we prayed for the church in Asia and then in Africa and then in Europe in the Middle East. 
and we heard some of the accounts of the things that are going on around the world. Uh, these are some recent statistics from an organization called Open Doors that keeps uh, stats on Christian persecution around the globe. In 2019, 2,983 Christians were killed for their faith that they were able to identify and know of. 310 million Christians face high or extreme levels of persecution. And attacks against churches last year have risen 500% from 1,847 to almost 9,500 attacks on churches. Grenades thrown into churches in Africa, churches burned in North Africa, churches seized and shut down in China. Persecution isn't just something that was a thing of the past that we read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs and Eusebius's church history. There have been more martyrs for Christ in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined, and it's growing, and it will continue to grow as the world hates and resents Christ and those who believe what he taught, who obey what he commands, and represent him trying to serve the world that hates them. Then we prayed for the church in America because persecution is occurring here too and it's increasing here too. In 2019, Chick-fil-A capitulated to the LGBT movement's demands and stopped funding Fellowship of Christian Athletes and the Salvation Army because they didn't want the peer pressure of those that, wanted, that res resented money going to overtly Christian organizations. Uh, last night in Portland, in another night of rioting, Bibles were thrown in the fires, along with the other demands and the graffiti going on. Why Bibles thrown in over what is presumably a racial issue? Because Christians are going to be associated with conservative values, with conservative views, and they'll also be caught up in this wash. And so the persecution is here, it is increasing, and it's going to raise for us five questions that we're going to have to face. Firstly, in light of the persecution that is promised, that is present and is coming, we're going to have to ask ourselves, what do we really believe? In an age when America was largely nominally Christian at least, it was easy to profess the creeds. It was easy to put a particular bumper sticker on your car. It was easy to go to a building on a particular day of the week. But once those things become increasingly unpopular and might lead to your being canceled online or might cost you your job or promotion, now we're going to have to truly ask ourselves, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that there is a God who made the heavens and the earth? Do I really believe that there was an Adam and Eve who sinned against God and led a rebellion that now is the, the reason, the explanation, the cause of all the suffering and the pain that we see in this world? Do I really believe that God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to become a human being through the Virgin Mary who lived a perfect life to obey the perfect commands of God's law, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, who rose bodily from the grave three days later so that all those who place their faith in him, repenting of their sins, will be transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son, who will be forgiven and reconciled and adopted, and that one day he's coming back and there will be a judgment and there will be a new heavens and a new earth for those who have repented of their sins and embraced Jesus as their savior. Do I believe that? 
do I believe that the Bible is indeed God's inspired inerrant word? And not just true and authoritative, but what's best for us? That I can look at someone who has a different view of morality and sexuality and of how the races should reconcile and to say, God's word is true, it is right, and it's what bre- it is what's best. It's what leads to human flourishing. It's what leads to society's thriving. That the most loving thing that I can do to another person is encourage them to repent of their sins, embrace Jesus as their Savior, to follow him as their Lord by obeying God's revealed word and waiting in anticipation for the return of Christ, even though he promises me we will suffer for that. Do I really believe that? Because we're about to be challenged on that. Secondly, where do our loyalties really lie? There was a news report coming out of Louisville, Kentucky, of a radical group pressing uh, business owners to put on their sign support of their agenda. And if you do, you get a sticker that goes on your window saying an ally of the cause. If you don't, you get a sticker put on your window that says an enemy of the cause. And you don't get to remain neutral. They're trying to force them to decide whose side are you on. And after so long a time of pretended neutrality, or that we could somehow be like Switzerland and just stay out of it, we're going to have to make a decision. We're going to have to take sides. And it's going to cost us. And so Joshua challenged Israel and said, choose today whom you will serve. If an idol or another God, go serve them. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. That when Daniel was taken into captivity, he set his heart to obey the Lord. And not knowing what would be asked, not knowing what would be prohibited, not knowing what it would cost him, he had predetermined at the beginning, I will not capitulate, I will not yield, I will obey God because I belong to him. And so we as Christians are going to have to be bolder and braver. And we're going to have to proclaim our allegiance and to prove our loyalty, no matter what it costs us. Thirdly, we need to ask ourselves, how shall we prepare? How do we as individuals prepare ourselves for a time when our faith is challenged more pressingly? Uh, It's going to require us to be more prayerful. It's going to require us to be daily in the word. We're going to have to memorize more scripture. We're going to have to fight more sins. We're going to have to surround ourselves with more church family. We're going to have to be more dedicated and devoted, or we won't be able to stand firm when the day comes. Athletes across Texas, uh, COVID not maybe allowing now, but most times, most August, the football players are in 2 days. The basketball players are already in open gym. People are preparing their bodies to get it ready for the coming season because they know it's about to be a pounding time. It's about to demand much of them. And so they prepare themselves. Well, the same is true spiritually. And we have to prepare ourselves by growing in our spiritual disciplines, by growing in our corporate community life so that we can be ready to resist when the day comes. Fourthly, how shall we endure? The answer, by grace, through prayer, together. Uh, Peter thought that he could stand on his own. And if Peter, the chief of the apostles, couldn't, we most certainly can't. Not on our own. And so we'll look to God for grace and strength 
endurance and uh, the ability to resist no matter what. And God will grant that grace in those moments because he's a gracious God. And when those moments of trial come, we will pray to him and he'll answer that prayer. But we have to do it as a community. We have to do it together. Yesterday, I received an email that said this. Uh, Good morning, John. I know it's been a while since we've spoken. And at first blush, you might wonder why I'm sending this article. And the article was about the uh, presumed suicide of a Christian apologist named Mike Adams, who was a criminology professor at the University of North Carolina, who had been very strong for preserving free speech on campus. But because of his conservative views of even having the right to express opinions that differ from the current uh, prevailing orthodoxy, he was forced into resignation. He was denounced online. And that's the presumed explanation for his suicide. And so the email went on to go say, this article raises an issue of deep concern to me. In the face of increasing pressure and persecution from the world, I believe that the church will increasingly come under stress in its defense of the gospel and our gospel witness. One of the tactics of the enemy is to separate us, to marginalize us, as one writer said, to atomize us. In coming days, the fellowship of the saints, yes, the physical gathering, but more than that, the spiritual gathering of the church, true koinonia, will become increasingly critical in our healthy survival. As this article points out, even our physical survival. I'd love to hear your thoughts this week. Or I'd love to hear your thoughts on this anytime this week. And we're having lunch Wednesday. But he's right. Uh, on our own, we'll fall one by one. We need to come together as a family, as a body, to support one another, to help one another, to speak out for one another while we can. There was a famous Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II named Niemöller, and he said this, when they came for the communist, I did not speak out because I wasn't a communist. When they came for the socialist, I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. When they came for the trade unionist, I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. When they came for the Jews, I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. When they came for me, No one spoke out because no one was left. We have to be the family that God intended us to be and viewing each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever denominational distinctions may have us worshiping separately. This is how Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher of the 19th century, said it to a group in Scotland. The significant circumstance is that I am here speaking to you as the Free Church of Scotland as a Baptist. You've seen the shepherd gather the sheep from the hills, gather them into one flock when the storm is coming on. And now I think the shepherd of Israel is gathering us together, for undoubtedly a storm is coming. We may hear his voice calling, come closer together, confess yourself to be one flock, for the storm is near. In quiet times, it's okay to let the sheep wander about and graze where they will. But when the storm comes, it's time to bring them close together for warmth and protection and to make sure none are missing. Then he says, our captain seems to be saying, close ranks, my soldiers. Let every man draw near to his brother. And if some of you don't belong to the same regiment, the same denomination, the same church, let us nonetheless all strive as brothers to come close together 
close to our common flag, rallying to the call of our common captain. We need to be together as we go into this. And finally, what happens when we fail? Because surely all of us have moments that we are ashamed of. When people were mocking Christians and we didn't say anything, or when we shamefully stepped aside when we should have been bolder or remained silent when we should have been more vocal, and none of us are going to make through this without some faltering. And yet God is so gracious that he forgives us because you know the rest of the story, how Peter in denying Christ wasn't rejected by Christ, but rather Jesus made a point of restoring him and three times reminding him that he is not only forgiven, but that he still had a role in feeding his sheep. And now Peter became a better shepherd because he was one who had fallen, who had been weak and was better able to empathize with the other sheep in their moments of weakness. And so when we falter, when we fail, we ask forgiveness and we get back up and God will restore us. There's a beautiful anecdote told in an apocryphal uh, book called The Apostle of Peter of when Nero began persecuting the Christians in Rome, that the church urged Peter to flee the city so that he continued to shepherd them and not be falling into the hands of the pagans. And Peter was persuaded to leave, and as he was departing the city, Jesus approached him, entering the city. And Peter asked the question, Quo vadis domine? Which is Latin for, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus presumably said to him, to go into the city to be crucified again because Peter was unwilling to. And so Peter turned around, went into the city. And this is apocryphal, what we know is historical, that he was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. On another occasion, Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII, Edward VI, and Queen Mary, when Mary, Bloody Mary, the Roman Catholic Queen, came back in and tried to restore Catholicism to England, Cranmer capitulated. Cranmer renounced his Protestant faith, but then later grew ashamed and renounced his renunciation. And when they brought him to the stake, giving him one last chance to repent lest he be burnt alive, this was his final words. Now I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing that I ever said or did in my life. And that is setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth. Here and now, I renounce and refuse all the renunciations that I had previously given because of the fear of death to save my life. And inasmuch as my hand, his right hand, offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first punished. And as the fires licked up around him, he put his right hand into the flames and said, this was the hand that offended and died faithful, even though he had faltered. This passage in Mark 14 is about religious trials, the religious trials of Jesus and his integrity, his boldness, his courage, his willingness to suffer because of us, because of his great love for us and his great obedience to the Father. In contrast to the weakness and the frailty of Peter, who despite all his denials denied Christ three times and yet was restored. And we are to be inspired by Jesus' example, be cautioned by Peter's example for when our religious trials come, maybe in the workplace, 
maybe in the school, maybe among friends, maybe among family. It may be governmental at some point. And in that day, we'll have to say, I do believe in God and I do believe the Bible is his word and I will believe what it teaches and obey what it commands no matter the cost. And my loyalty is to Christ. My allegiance is to Jesus. And I'm willing to suffer it if need be, die for his sake, because he suffered and died for my sake. That even now I need to be preparing for that day, daily in my word, daily in prayer, fighting sin, gathering in with the saints, growing in my ability to worship God, even when the world becomes more silent in his praise. And then that day, I'll look to God and not my own resources to be able to stand strong, praying to him, relying on his grace, and looking to brothers and sisters around me for help in my trial, to support them in their trial until the captain comes and calls us home. And finally, in the moments when I'm weak, when I'm fearful, I'll ask forgiveness. I'll repent. Pray for God to restore me and help me do better next time. Thankful for so beautiful a God and so wonderful a Savior that he put his spirit within us, sealing us and securing us and letting us know that he loves his children no matter what, even in our weaker moments. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for this stark contrast of the two trials of Jesus and Peter written to prepare us for our own trials when they come. Grant us grace. Grant us strength. Keep us faithful. Keep us loyal. Keep us together. Keep us bold, shining bright for you, not hiding in fear, but still living boldly for Christ. Help us to remain faithful. Enable us to remain faithful until you come for us someday. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.